Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to episode number 45 of the Basketball Card Podcast. I am your host, Adam. Uh, you can reach me and find me uh, on Instagram at TheReal27Guy and find me in other places as The27Guy. Again, welcome. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to all of you who left me kind comments after last week's episode. Um, there's something that feels really good about being able to meet and talk to somebody who um, I've known about for really my whole life. And uh, that was definitely, definitely a neat moment for me. So appreciate that. Uh, Jim Beckett is a man who's still really darn sharp and knows an awful lot about our industry. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest you go back and listen to it. I think it was really good. Um, I wish I would have had more time. And, um, but he was pretty open to the idea of coming back again. I've got a lot more questions that I'd like to get, uh, like to ask him. And so um, I'll try to do that. But let's get to today. Today is a big day in the history of basketball. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how it relates to our hobby. Today is the day where the Milwaukee Bucks said, we're not going to play um, as part of a protest for some of the um, you know, I, I, I won't, I won't be labor, um, all of the social, social issues that are, that are happening today. Um, cause that's not why you're here, but you know what it's about. It's about protesting. Um, and, uh, so they're not going to play in, in an effort to basically send a message to the world and, uh, they have the right to do that. And so today we're going to talk about how that affects us in this hobby a little bit, but also I kind of, see the value in um, not everything in the world that is being discussed always being serious. Um, we, we talk a lot about really serious things in the news and basically everywhere. Uh, I walk past a set of three TVs on the way to my office every day uh, a bunch of times and there's always something serious on the TV. And cards are meant to be light and so I'm not going to really talk about it, talk about it a lot. Um, in fact, yeah, although I've kind of got it in my little, um, in my summary of things that I want to talk about today, I'm actually not going to talk at all about um, how today's events really affect the card hobby. I'm going to talk about um, the questions that you guys asked and the things that you talked, or the things that you sent me via IG today. Um, I sent a, sent something out via my story today saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing an episode. What would you guys like to hear me talk about? And within about 90 minutes, I had about 20 people ask different things that they wanted me to talk about. I chose nine of those, and there's some overlap between them, but I chose nine topics that I thought would be interesting to hit. And so that's what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about these nine things. And I hope it's interesting to you. All right, let's get straight to it. So number one comes from Brooklyn Vintage Cards. Uh, he says, real talk on why these canceled games. I don't get it. So, okay, I will talk about this just a little bit. I think that as, um, so I'm a white man. Let's get that out of the way first. So there's a lot of things that I can't speak to and I can't empathize with perfectly, but I can always try to empathize. And I think all of us should try to empathize and put ourselves in other people's positions. I think that when I hear people who are of color speak um, to their fear and about things that are hard for them, um, it, it often influences my thinking and changes my thinking and informs me and teaches me. And I think that as I listen to people of color talk about the things that are hard for them in the world right now, um, one of the things that I'm learning is that is that it's really um, 
it's really important that all of us understand kind of how they're feeling. And I think that by, by protesting and saying we're not going to play, um, it's, it's interesting because they're, it kind of feels like it's punitive to them and to the owners and to us. And it's kind of like, why would they do that? So I think Brooklyn Vintage's Cards question is a really good one here. And you'd really like to protest, you know, the, the people who are causing these things. But this is the most, this is the best way to have conversation, right? I'm literally talking about this on my podcast today because they canceled these games. And so, you know, the, the, hun- the, the several hundred people who will listen to this podcast will will hear it and will think about it because they decided to cancel the games. And I went and had conversations with several coworkers today about this. And we had those conversations because the game is canceled. That sort of um, awareness that is brought by, by not playing games, I think is what their goal is. And I think that's commendable. Um, so I don't think that that necessarily changes anything, but I do think it brings awareness. So that's, that's the biggest thing. All right, let's move on from that. Like I said, I didn't want to talk about that too long. So both Frankie, 30, uh, Frankie 500 and, uh, and Vintage B-Ball Cards on Instagram both asked me about the vintage boom of basketball and asked me to talk about it. So if, you'll, if you are somebody who's listened to the show for a while, you'll actually remember that several months ago, um, somebody asked me the question about where, where I think you should put money. And I don't like the idea of me giving um, advice investment advice um there's a lot of people out there right now who are who are trying to make money in doing that and and i think that's a pretty i think that's a pretty shady world um the 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 investment advice world i'm not saying that everyone who's involved in it is is bad or or evil but i think that i don't like thinking about cards as um stocks i like thinking about cards as work of art works of art i they're obviously investment vehicles there's no arguing that I like thinking about them as collectibles, and I like thinking about them in a way that's not always driven by money. So I try to stay away from that a little bit. But I was asked the question, you know, about uh, several a few months ago about where where you know the safest dollar is to put and things like that. And I've said for a long time that I thought that vintage basketball was one of the greatest investments in our hobby. Um, see, I say that, although I don't want to give investing advice, that's how I felt. And that's my, my collection reflects that. I've talked about how several of my cards on my, on my top 100, I get to just sneak in around 199 because I just, I couldn't let them fall out of the top 100. I just felt like they were so important and another not good word here, but undervalued. Um, and what's interesting is over the last couple of months, that has corrected significantly. And, and I would argue that that is long overdue. Um, you know, you look at, I'll give you a couple of examples from, from my list. Right at the end of the list, right at the end of my countdown this year, I have an Oscar Robertson autographed rookie card and an Elgin Baylor autographed rookie card. And each one of those are cards that have been graded in an unsigned, um, you know, unsigned copies, just regular copies, have been graded very sparsely. There's not a lot of them out there. You're talking about cards that have been graded in the, in the hundreds and cards in nice grades that are very rare. So then you take a card like the, those cards that I have that are signed and authenticated by PSA DNA, and those cards, there's like double digits of them. Um, my Elgin Baylor is a four, 
And I think if I remember right, there's something like 12 that have been graded higher than that. And the autograph is super clean. And I've got a Jerry West too that's a little bit higher that's just so nice. But I look at that and I'm like, man, there are cards of average NBA players today that that are more plentiful than these than these you know greats that are worth far more like this just doesn't make sense so what i think it took is it took some of these investor guys to come in and say look this doesn't make any sense and we can we can cause some real hype um and drive people to buy this vintage stuff and i think as they've done that i think it's worked it's not a difficult story to tell you know it's a story that i it's a it's a um, story that I've been telling for a long time. Vintage cards are undervalued. And um, I think I think that you, you're seeing it across the board. If there's somebody who's recognizable and a card that's recognizable from the 60s through 80s, it has, it has seen a giant increase in value over the course of the last few months. And like I said, something that we believed was possible, something that does make sense. It's weird to see such a high, such a great increase over a small amount of time for something that's been there for so long. And it's easy to just be lazy and say it's long overdue. Um, I think that's largely true. But having said that, the thing that I will warn you guys about, and we're going to talk about this later in the podcast, is that there are people today whose primary purpose in the hobby is to create hype, to drive prices higher on cards that they already own, and then to sell them while they're high. And when that happens, what will often happen afterwards is when the people who are hyping leave, the card will dramatically decrease in price. And so people are left holding something that was artificially inflated. We're gonna talk a little bit about how that happens later on in this, uh, in one of the the final questions, but, I think that, you know, as I look at my vintage basketball stuff increasing in value and I'm in a situation right now where I need to sell things to create some cash um, for for some card debt that I've gotten myself into, I am left sometimes wondering, I'm left thinking, is this something that I want to sell because I love my vintage and and, uh, I don't want to move it, Um, even though a lot of it has really increased in value. But that might be more... A commentary on me and how I collect than on what you ought to do. Um, I do think it's important to recognize that there has been this boom though and if you are somebody who's purchased vintage in the past go and, and you're not aware of this you know of this this boom go look at what what's happened and from 86 Fleer all the way back to you know the 50s and the 40s you're going to look at prices and go oh my goodness because some of these cards are selling for multiples of what they were even six months ago in fact it's so extreme that if you look up a card like just say like an elgin baylor 1961 fleer and you sort by highest on the sold items on ebay you're going to notice some interesting things where cards that were selling in june in a in a in a higher grade are selling sold for less than cards in August that were in a lower grade. And that's pretty jarring. You don't usually see that on vintage. It's been so, you know, it's been so stagnant for so long. But the but the boom that we're seeing in our hobby, coupled with people who I believe want the cards to increase, and again, the underrated, um, long overdue need for these, some of these cards to be appreciated more. I think all those things come together, all those factors come together and lead us to where we are right now. Will it last? I don't know. Will it continue to go up? I don't know. 
again, I'm never going to tell you guys what I think is going to happen because I, um, from an investing perspective, because I don't want you to depend on what I say. I don't want you to, you know, I, ju I just, I want you to collect what you like. I want you to find joy in the hobby. I don't want you to buy things just to sell them for more money. I think that's a, that's an easy, that's a, that's a hobby that, you know, maybe you start that way, but, but in the end, I think you need to buy what you like. You need to enjoy some of the cards that you have rather than always looking for the buck. I, I'm, I see some of the people on forums right now. It, it feels the quality of the conversation right now feels like it's significantly less than what it's been in the past. Um, you got people who, who just come onto forums and in place and places. And the question is as simple as, do you think this will go up? Do you think this will go up in value? It's like, I, I don't know. I, I, is that, is that what this is all about at this point? Are we just buying things to see because they'll go up or down? It's incredibly frustrating. But again, having said that, I'm a, I'm kind of a stage of life where that maybe matters less to me than it does to than it does to a lot of people. So I get it. I still get it. But but like try to find some joy in what you're actually looking at rather than just watching the ups and the downs. Okay. And rant there. All right. Kavotis, K-E-V-O-T-A-S on Instagram asks, should collectors eventually boycott Panini for box prices? You know what, man? I don't know. Like, I think as a business, their job is to is to say, okay, what can we charge and that will that will still sell the product? It's not to just say, you know, how do we make everything be affordable? Now I, I would like to see Panini, I'm an advocate of Panini coming up with a box that is affordable for the masses. It makes me feel bad that that somebody with a reasonable amount of money, and I would say a reasonable amount of money is about $100. Somebody with a reasonable amount of money should be able to get a cool box of cards. It doesn't have to be the highest end, but it needs to be something that they can open some packs and feel good about. And I'm not sure that that exists right now. It might. I might be wrong. Um, and if I am, please let me know. Uh, but, but, you know, Kavotis might, you know, I haven't opened packs of cards in years. It just doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect me. I, I'm not into the gamble. The gamble does me no good. In my, in my experience, wax is a wonderful way for you to throw away your money. So it doesn't appeal to me. I walk into a card shop and people are like standing around in a circle waiting for people to open packs. They're so excited about it. I like, I, I do understand why it's interesting to watch opening packs and I understand why it's fun to open packs everybody in the world loves that because it's a gamble but like it's not appealing to me from an intellectual perspective because even if you do get a great card how often is it a card that you really want to keep you know usually you're gonna get a great card of some player you don't want and then you can sell it and then go buy something else that you want i'll just skip the middleman and go buy the thing that i want right and most of the people who i know in this hobby who've lasted a long time they aren't big wax busters they're people who love their cards you can do both and some people can keep it under control, but I have a fairly addictive personality, and so I stay away from it. But um, you know, if you if you feel like they're doing something wrong, if you think if you feel like Panini is is misbehaving, then yes, you absolutely should boycott them. Um, buy what you like, though. That's my advice. All right, my guy, gr eight t one four three. I always call him great great one forty three in my mind. Brian asks. How to build a meaningful collection if new to the hobby would be priced out. The great word here is meaningful, Brian, because 
I think that um, my son got a care package from um, Action Jack uh, Cards. I think that's his name, uh, the, the great Golden State Warrior, the Stephen Jackson collector on Instagram. He got a care package a couple of months ago, and it was like random prism jazz cards. And I sat and I looked at this package, and I thought, this is a great collection of stuff that is meaningful to Aaron, to my son. Um, but it's not valuable. In fact, it was sent to him for free because because um, that user is I always I, I I refer to him as Jack in my mind. I know that's not his name, but um, because it's that he collects Stephen Jackson. But uh, he he compiled an awesome little jazz collection of stuff and he sent that to Aaron and it's like it's really nice, meaningful stuff that they had taught Aaron about members of the Utah Jazz and it was really cool. Um, that is meaningful and it cost like it cost him probably not a ton of money and it cost Aaron no money because it was given to him it depends on how you define meaningful is what i'm getting at you can build a meaningful collection by putting together a set that's interesting to you you can um you can find what you like for not a lot of money right now i'll give you an example i i, I messaged um i used this on my story last night or a couple nights ago I found a set recently that I really like, and um, I knew that it existed, but I never really thought about it from the perspective of something that I would want to buy. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. So in 2015, or yeah, 2015 for Christmas, I bought my son Aaron a box of cards, and it was the one that was it was cheapest at the time. He was like five, and I just wanted to open something with him a pack at a time over the course of months. And so I bought him a box of complete, Panini Complete Basketball. Panini Complete is a giant base set. It's like 350 cards or something. And it's it's got a silver in every pack, a silver parallel, and some very basic inserts. And then there's a gold insert, one per box. And our gold insert was somebody pretty common. I can't I can't remember. It's kind of it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember exactly who it was. But nobody, nobody really worth a lot of money. And so, but I looked at it and I was like, well, you know what? This is kind of cool because they still have, it kind of reminded me of, reminded me of like collector's choice when they had the gold signature, the player's platinum uh, cards from back in the day. It's a big set. It's super cheap and it's clearly the best parallel and it's difficult to find. Now it wasn't as nice as the platinum portraits or the gold signature from collector's choice because the only thing that differentiated this gold card was a gold border, but it did still stand out. It was the one chase. And because it's a big enough set and cards aren't produced like they were back in the day, there aren't a lot of these cards out there, right? So this week I was like searching around for Kobe Gold cards because I've been on a Kobe Gold card kick. And I saw on CompSea a Kobe Gold, um, a Kobe Gold uh, Panini Complete card. And it was $30. And I was like, this is just a no-brainer to me. It's not expensive, and I know I realize thirty dollars is still significant to some people. I don't want to be, you know, take that too lightly, but it's not too expensive for you know for me. It's it's affordable, and it's you know there's all you know there's not a lot of these out there. There aren't any in the sold listings on on eBay. They're hard to like they're hard to find. This is definitely a tough pull. You know, if you if you just do the quick odds, if there's a, if it's a three hundred and thirty card set then that card is a 1 in 330 box card. 
a gold card of Kobe Bryant from his playing days for 30 bucks. It was one in 330 boxes. That's a great deal. And so then I went on and I found a LeBron and I bought that. And I found a few other stars that I wanted to. And I came away with like seven or eight cards for under $100 that you couldn't pull if you unless you opened hundreds of boxes of those things. And I thought, this is really cool. And Aaron and I will talk about it and and we'll, you know, think about like why this is a cool set and we'll and, and put together something meaningful. Now I'm not gonna go put together that whole set, although I do love putting together insert sets, but whether you're buying, you know, being a team collector or a you know an individual player collector, you have the chance to to really do some interesting things. The Action Jack guy who I talked to you about has an unbelievable collection of Steven Jackson. And he finds just as much joy in that, I guarantee you, is as a lot of other collectors do, you know, uh, previous guest Kyle, who collects Jeff Foster, same thing. There's joy in cards that are 5 or $10. I've said it a million times, guys. It's the best hobby in the world because whether you have a dollar a week budget or a $20,000 a week budget, you can still have a great experience in the hobby. So my advice to you would be find something that you really enjoy, collect it, um, and, and cherish it and really enjoy it. Okay, great question. Okay, now next question. Three underscore co underscore LA. What are your all-time favorite sets? This is a quicker answer. Uh, for me, um, I am, my all-time favorite set is probably 86-87 Fleer because it's one that I put together when I was a kid. But as I've gotten older and as I've appreciated rare cards more often, uh, you know, I, I am into things that, uh, cards and of, of players that are really significant to the history of the hobby and so that's why people collect things like the original chrome refractor that's why people collect 2003 exquisite and um, but for for me um, I, I collect the thing the thing that I've been looking at more recently I mean I mentioned that that complete set but um, you know, a few years ago, I bought as much Eminence as I could find, and I'm I love Eminence. Eminence is easily my favorite Panini set, um, but I think that the 2012 Gold Prism is like the most significant set, and so I collect that. All right, Gray's Trading Post uh, says the rarest cards that you wouldn't think are rare. You know, this question, I I kept it because I wanted to have a quick conversation on rarity. I think rarity is um, is a word that we use in different ways. And I think of rarity in a very simple way, where I think a card that is numbered to one is rarer than a card that's numbered to two. But for some people, rarity mean has some level of, of being iconic with it. I don't know which cards are rarer than people think, and I and I don't know which cards are more undervalued than people think, but I do believe that rarity really matters, and I've talked about that a million times, um, and I just I just covered it with the with the complete set the gold cards, I am buying them because they're rare. They're no they're no better visually than the silvers are. I'm buying them because they're rare, but you know. Go back to every parallel that's ever come out. There's lots of parallels that aren't a whole lot better looking that are worth a lot more money. In some cases, you can even say that a card looks better in its basic form. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, people think the 1997-98 PMGs 
are not necessarily, some people think they're not as nice as the base cards because the base cards have a lot more colors on them. They're not just red or green backgrounds. They have all sorts of different colors. The key is that they were different and they stood out and there was no mistaking them. That can be done with some simple mechanisms. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that, that rare cards, um, you know, they, they come in all sort of, in all sort, sort of uh, shapes and sizes, but um, I, I think that, that, that this question is interesting because, you know, you should find something that is rare. I shouldn't say should because you should collect what you like. You can't say, this is a big kick that I'm on. You can't say out of one side of your mouth, collect what, you're li- what you like, and then the, out of the other side, tell people what to collect. You don't get to do both of those things. You kind of have to pick a side, and the side that I'm going to live on is the collect what you like side. I, I think you should collect what you like, and I'm not going to tell you what to collect. Um, but what I do, what I would, what I would say on top of that is, I do think it's a good idea to look out there for something that is both rare and not, and hasn't been discussed by the big podcasters, and hasn't been talked about a lot on the forums, and and is good looking and you do find appealing, find that thing and then go work on that. Okay, next question. Pack to the Future podcast uh, asks, is Silver Prism still the long-term card to collect? I do not own a single Silver Prism rookie, but I have owned a lot of them. I do own a few Silver Prism cards. No, I own one now. It's only one now, I think. And, I, and that's like the best Silver Prism card. The, I still own a LeBron James from 2012 um, because I believe that that card's significant. But I won't say too much more about that. Um, but I think Chad's question here is more about, about rookie cards. And this is, this is something that came up to me last week as I was looking at Damian Lillard card prices that, that really jumped out to me. And I shared this with a couple of people. I think this is really interesting. So I looked at the most recent price of Damian Lillard's flawless autograph card, and this is a card that I own. So um, definitely, you know, remember that I'm biased by that. But I'll tell you why I own the card. Um, Damian Lillard only has one on on card autographed card from his rookie from his rookie card that's NBA licensed. Only one. It's out of flawless. It's number the main ones to one to twenty five. Then there's one to fifteen, one to ten, one to five, and one to one. And I think that's number. I think that's a total of fifty six. So it's fifty six total on card rookie autos. And the main version is number twenty five. It's encased, and I own one of those. Um, when his stuff was blowing up, I went out there and I looked at historical prices, and unfortunately, none had sold in the time that he was really on fire. Um, but but there were some older ones that had sold, and I was able to kind of triangulate what I thought the price was. And what blew me away was that the silver prism um, was worth two to three times that flawless card. And I've I've mentioned a few times that I feel like, in my opinion, the market has, and and I and I am clearly wrong about this because I felt like this a long time ago, but. I feel like some of those more generic cards, and there's nothing generic about a silver prism. There's only 180 of them. It's an iconic set. You know, I get it. But it doesn't make sense in my mind that that card would be worth as much as the only on-card autograph of Damian Lillard's rookie year, let alone that it would be worth a multiple of that. 
That doesn't make sense to me. But it's because the market has determined that the silver prism is so significant. My suggestion in this case, and well, not my suggestion, what I believe in this case is I would rather own the flawless card. I would rather own the thing that I think is cooler, more unique, more interesting. I don't feel strongly about Silver Prism rookies. I do feel some something about 2012 and 2013, and Lillard is in 2012. I do, I do get that. I understand. But I don't feel as strongly about it as I do about other things, right? So some people still believe it's the thing. It might always be the thing, Chad. It might always be the card. But it's not... To me, it's not the most interesting sort of strategy. And it's not the thing that I want the most. Again, I would rather own the flawless autograph. I would rather own the flawless autograph than three Lillard Prism rookies. In fact, when I bought the flawless autograph, I had a chance to buy the gold for about twice as much. And looking back, I should have done that. For sure, I should have done that. But it just, it it's not, um, but the silver is just far more plentiful and like I said, there's like 180 of them. So um, to me, that's not close. Anyway, that, that's, that's, that's enough on that. All right, next one's an interesting one. And this guy asked me this question a while ago. I'm glad that he followed up with me today. This is Schwab Card Collector. Um, again, on Instagram, asked, how do you trust the validity of patches from older cards that have, been, that have changed hands without an image? This is a great, a great question. And I think the unfortunate answer is you really can't. You can't know, there's there's some nuance to this, and, and I'm going to talk about this for a second, but um, you cannot know whether a card has an original patch in it, in most cases. And let's educate as to why. There are really, 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 really bad guys that take cards and try to figure out how they can alter them to then sell them for more money. Ways that they alter include things like trimming the edges of the cards, things like taking autographs and wiping them away and then adjusting them to make them look better or to make them look bluer. Um, they include people who take cards with patches in them that are, are maybe not as nice of patches and then taking a fake piece of jersey or a piece of jersey from another card and putting that within the card that had the bad patch. And you say, how do they do that? I don't know. I've heard people talk about how they can actually split the card in half. It kind of makes more sense to me that they probably are able to just pull the piece of the uniform straight off the front. Because I would guess that the back of the, the behind the jersey just has like a sticky piece of cardboard. I mean, I would, I would guess that it's that simple. The problem that arises from that is that um, the problem for those people who have who have decided to do the really, really, really bad thing and, and do that patch switching is that we have some really smart people in this hobby, some great detectives that have been able to find these types of um, bad behavior. And so that gives you some background on, on, on the patch switching question that uh, Schwab Card Collector had, had here. People, people do switch patches, patch, patches out and have switched them out. What I would highlight here is a couple of things. One thing is that a premium patch used to have a more significant multiple on it or more or seem more desirable than they do now. I know a lot of collectors, me included, who 
view a patch card as an insert, as um, as just a card that that has a piece of uniform in it, and the quality of it is is secondary. I have some cards, including one kind of notable one in my top ten, that has a really plain patch. But the great thing about it is I know that it's real. Not only do I know that that particular card is real because it has a plain patch, but also, and this is the next key, because it was graded a long time ago. When a card was graded a long time ago, especially with BGS, you can go in and see the date um, on their website that the card was graded. That can give you assurance as far as how long the card has, how long it's been since that card has been touched. And what it doesn't tell you is what happened to that card before it got to BGS. There's a chance that it could have been switched out and then graded by BGS. But in the case of the card that I'm referring to, it was sent back in 2002. And that's about as good as you're going to get on a, on a patch card. Um, the, the fact that it's fairly simple and that it was graded 18 years ago is helpful. So what I would highlight on this to you is, um, you know, I don't think you can know for sure, but I think that you can... You know, you can still do your due diligence. You can you can do those things that I already talked about, but you can also, you know, the other thing is if you get one that's just a crazy patch from back in the day, unfortunately now, unless there's a video or unless you can match it to other jerseys and stuff, it's, it's really hard to feel really confident. And so for me, I don't, I don't buy those types of cards that I'm not really confident in. Um, I think Schwab Card Collector originally asked me this question after I got a fairly nice but not amazing Kobe Bryant 2004 um, premium patches. And, and he asked me that question then, and I thought it was a really good question then. That Kobe, I think, has, a, has probably a pretty average patch on it. Um, the, the pattern is, is similar to other ones, but the fact that it wasn't amazing, the, pack, the fact that the... Pa- the um, that the that the pattern kind of matched, or that the jersey pattern matched other ones that I that I was able to see online, that was enough for me to feel comfortable. And because it's a card that's numbered to twenty five, I view that card more as a, a rare Kobe insert than I do as a Kobe game used card. I know it is a game used card, but for me, owning the card was the important thing. It wasn't the quality of the patch. So, hope that gives you something to think about. But I think you're asking a really good question. I think. I think that's why people have kind of gone away from the game used, largely, and has go- have gone towards the shiny stuff. I would argue that the pendulum has swung way, 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 way too far um, on that, and that the game used stuff has more appeal to me these days because the prices are just so much better. Um, but uh, yeah, dude, that was a great that was a great question. And the last the last question that I really want to hit um, is uh, from V Iron Chic. And he asks how the mainstream speakers for the card community are all new channels pumping. Yeah, you know, this is interesting because, you know, it, it, we should probably first have a foundational sort of conversation on how pumping works. Um, it's not lost on me that I, that as I, you know, run um, a, you know, as I run a podcast, that I have the opportunity to speak in a way that might might actually influence people into buying or selling cards. It may actually change buying behaviors. And I don't take that responsibility lightly. 
Um, I have taken it lightly in different types times of my life in how I've written on forums and in how I've had discussions with people. And, and it makes, when you start to realize that you have that kind of power, though, it, it, it changes things. And, I, and I'm not saying that to say, hey, look at me, I'm special. I, I think that all of us have that power, and that's what's scary. If you're willing to take time to write or to talk and to do it in a way with an intent, or to do it in a way with, yeah, with an intent to try to affect market values, I think the chances are that you can succeed. And so, you know, when you go and you watch or listen, if you watch something that's on YouTube, that's by a car content guy, or you go listen to something and they talk about things, you know, you have to watch how you behave. You have to watch how you're affected by that. You know, I think you have to ask the question, you know, what was their intent in bringing that up? And so, you know, you listen to this podcast today. I talked about the um, Panini Complete Gold cards. It's not lost on me that that could actually affect their market. And that's interesting, right? Like that is, um, that's a scary thing. And so um, you noticed as, in fact, it's, it's funny, is you might have noticed that as I was talking about the, the rare card that I have that's graded with the, with the single color patch, I didn't mention what card it was. It's because um, I didn't mention which specific card it was. You could probably figure it out if you went and looked at my Instagram, but um, I am becoming more and more sensitive to this all the time. And at the same time, I, I also feel like if I'm not going to talk about those things, then, then who is sort of, uh, who is going to talk about it and and who are you going to listen to and I don't I just don't know whether the other people in the hobby who are talking about prices and, and specific cards and things you don't know always what their intent is because those creators are also people who own cards and wouldn't it be nice if they got on a podcast and they talked about their cards in a way that made you think about going and buying them? And oh, well, what do you know? They went and they sold theirs a little while later. Like that is the thing that exists, right? That is what market manipulation is all about. And I think that's what the Iron Sheik is, is getting at here is that we have people in our hobby who are mainstream, mainstream speakers for the community. And when they speak, they influence values. They change values. People literally go from listening to their podcast to searching cards on eBay. And so that is, again, why I will just give you the piece of advice that I've given a hundred other times. You already know what I'm going to say. Buy what you like. Do not listen to what somebody else says and go buy it. Do not, you know, but, but at the same time, that's part of how people like the hobby. Some people like speculating on new prospects so much that they will listen to what somebody says about a prospect without watching them, without going and looking them up. They'll go drop a couple hundred bucks on a card and they'll get in the mail and they love getting things in the mail. They love getting new cards and they love having somebody that they can watch and have their performance tied to value of their own. I get all of that, guys. But what I'm telling you, what I'm really getting down to here is that that sort of that sort of talk in a podcast or on a forum can really influence markets and it's really not good. So, you know, don't do that. Like don't, don't follow them and be aware that it's happening. 
Now you're gonna walk away from this podcast today. And you're gonna say, okay, I, I learned some things. Maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe if if you've even made it this far, you know, maybe maybe you'll you'll think that some of it's a crock, and you'll you know decide that that's wrong. But the thing that I would beg you to do is to do your own research, look back historically at how values have changed, and develop your own thought process on what what you want to own, and if you're an investor, what you think will increase in value. But I wouldn't listen, I wouldn't give a lot of stock to people saying, hey, go check this out, this is going up a ton, maybe you should get in on it. Having said that, that's not the same as somebody else just coming out and saying, hey, here's, here's, here's changes that we see. Noticing the changes is very different than going out and acting on those changes. Um, but don't fall for the hype. And when you hear somebody hyping and you see prices being reported, be aware that sometimes those prices aren't real. It's very hard today to determine what prices are actually real, what things really sold, or what things were bid up by somebody um, who wanted to, ins- to see the market inflated. If you haven't listened to my episode on eBay being used to create narratives, I would suggest you do that. People use eBay and people use sales data now as the new Beckett magazine. Um, And this isn't new. This goes back 20 years that people have been doing this. They've looked at historical sales as their Beckett. So if you can artificially change what a given card looks like it's sold for, you can artificially change what somebody else is willing to pay. And I know that sounds crazy, but a lot of times when people make an offer on something, they aren't paying what they think they should pay. They're paying a little bit more or a little bit less than what the last thing sold for. So be very cautious of that, guys. I will mention this market manipulation thing probably more than anything else and will continue to remind you because I know there's a lot of young people in the hobby who don't know about these things. And I know that those of us who have been in it for a while can see the dollar signs and get wrapped up in it. I know that there's people out there who are literally buying things they do not care about because they think that they can just go make money on it and they, they have serious FOMO. And so, you know, the fear of missing out, they go and they, they say, I'm going to go buy this thing and, and it's going to go up. The thing that I will tell you that has been my, my long term over the course of 30 years that I've noticed over and over and over again is that things come up and then they usually come back down. That's usually what happens. Um, But we're in an unprecedented stage. We've seen incredible growth. We may continue to see incredible growth. It may be a long time, but ask when you see things growing, ask why. And remember, and again, I'm gonna keep beating this drum, remember that in the end, the card has to have somebody who who loves it. Because if if people are just passing things around, just hoping that they'll continue to go up, that that's not the end user of the card the card needs an end user all right i think um i think i've got about 100 more things that i want to talk about but i wanted to get this done in 45 minutes and we're almost there so um again go back and listen to the beckett podcast if you haven't listened to it um, i wanted to do an episode of beckett or do a little bit of uh, beckett bites today but knew that it wasn't going to happen so um grateful though that uh, that you listened and downloaded the podcast Go give it a rating. 
share it. If you can share something on Instagram, like some of you awesome people have done recently. Thank you for those of you who've done it. Uh, if you can do that, I really appreciate that. And uh, be on the lookout. I've got some other exciting things going on. I'll leave it at that. And until next time, happy collecting.